We are continuing on in the book of James, and so if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to open to James chapter 2, James chapter 2, and we're going to read the first uh, 13 verses, James 1, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and if you have a handout, an outline tonight, the title is Godless Favoritism. What we're going to be dealing with tonight is kind of a touchy subject, kind of a touchy subject, a tough one, because we're dealing with the issue of discrimination. Um, and, and James is going to be addressing it within the four walls of the church, talking to believers about the issue of discrimination. And so if you have your Bibles, James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. Let, let me break that down. He's saying you cannot claim to have faith in the Lord Jesus if you have respect of people. In other words, if you're discriminating one person against another. If you're showing favoritism to this person and not to the other. He says, basically, you can't claim, have, claim to have faith and have that going on at the same time. The verse 2. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, the, the fine clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool, and you not, uh, are you not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. In other words, just, just because you broke one and not the other one, hey, you broke the whole thing. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's all a package deal. You break one, you break them all. He says, So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for this night to get together. We thank you for a, just an awesome, uh, awesome crowd, an awesome uh, just an opportunity to hear from your word. Lord, I pray right now that you would just speak to me. Lord, speak through me. Lord, you know all the studying that's been going on behind the scenes. Lord, I just pray right now that you would help me. Lord, edit the things I need to say and the things I don't need to say. And Lord, I just want to be a vessel that you pour into so I can be poured out. And Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So Jesus is speak, or James is speaking about the issue of discrimination. In other words, showing one person favoritism and not the other. You treat this guy this way and you treat this guy another way. Now, has anyone in here or out there at Fairview ever been treated unfairly in your life? Anytime you feel like you've been unfairly treated. Um, now, now let, me, let me just give you a scenario. This is kind of a humorous scenario to understand discrimination, but I think some of us in here have witnessed it firsthand. Let me give you an example. How many of you have kids and, 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 and your kids have grandparents? Or let me ask you this. How many of you here have grandparents? All right, all right, we've got a lot of grandparents. That's great. Now, here's what I've come to learn. Growing up, I'll take my, my kids over to my mom and daddy's house, 
And, and they'll be running around the house, throwing the ball, having a good old time. And I'm tense. Because I remember what it was like when I was a kid running the house, throwing ball, that I was going to get a tail whooping. Because you don't run and throw the ball in the house. And I'll, I'll be, hey, kids, y'all, y'all settle down. And my mama would be like, don't bother them. And I'm thinking, say what? Say what? And then out of nowhere, my mom would say, who wants ice cream? And I'll look at my clock and I say, it's four o'clock in the afternoon, mom. We're about to have dinner. Because I remember as a kid, you didn't eat before dinner time because you spoil your appetite. And you know you weren't going to have no ice cream before dinner. And so now here she is offering ice cream. Of course, the kid's like, I want ice cream. And I was like, Mama, we're about to eat. And she says, them grandbabies can have anything they want. And I was this close from calling the cops. I was, I was like, I feel discriminated against because growing up, I got my tail whooped and I couldn't have nothing. I'd be starving to death. I'd be thirsty. And she would say, drink from the hose. Don't come in this house. And I'm out there trying to survive, you know, drinking out of this 110 degree water hose, scalding my lips, trying to get something to drink. And, and I'm like, this is discrimination. I was your own flesh and blood, your kid, and you treated me this way. Now my grand, your grandkids are coming around and you treat them like they're royalty. And I, I know that's a humorous way to look at discrimination, but let's be honest. Discrimination is happening in our world today. Prejudice still exists, racism still exists, ageism still exists, classism still exists. And, and, and listen, we're living in a society today that is more divided than I think it's been, at least in my lifetime. And, and I know some of y'all are older than I am, but in my lifetime, this is the most divided I've ever seen it. I mean, you have colleges, colleges that are having separate graduation ceremonies, one for the white students and one for the black students. And they're doing this in the vein of unity. I'm thinking, you're doing nothing but disunifying what's happening. And and I remember all the racial tension. Like, I I grew, a lot of y'all say, well, I'm from Florida, and I am technically from Florida. Uh, I moved there my senior year of high school to Panama City. But growing up, most of my upbringing was in South Alabama. I grew up in Mobile, Alabama. And uh, I went to elementary school, middle school, high school in, in South Alabama. And I remember there being really high racial tensions within the schools of, of, of South Alabama. I remember there being fights that broke out between the white students and the black students for seemingly no reason at all, just because they didn't like each other. And, and I, I know what it's like to grow up in a household that has family members that use racial slurs against different kinds of races. I, look, that was something I was familiar with. That's something I heard a lot. And, and, and that's something I believe still exists today. But I believe that the political divide that is happening in our country today is even more extreme. And what James is addressing here is the issue of discrimination. And he's speaking to, look at verse 1. He says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren. My, so who is he talking to right there? Believers. He's talking to believers. He says, my brethren. And he's going to start a story about two different types of people coming to a church service. He says, one looks rich, the other one looks poor. And so James is addressing the issue of discrimination with believers. And he's telling them, this shouldn't exist in your home. And this shouldn't exist in your heart. And this shouldn't exist in your church. And even though he's painting the picture of rich versus poor, 
I, I believe it can apply as a blanket to all kinds of division that can happen, whether it's rich or poor, male or female, black or white, uh, 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 old and young, or, or, or Democrat or Republican. He's saying there shouldn't be any kind of division or discrimination taking place like that in your heart, your home, or your church. Pastor E.V. Hill, a very gifted uh, black preacher, great man of faith, his granddaddy told him one day, he says, go get an education so that nobody looks down on you, and then go get some more education so that you don't look down on nobody else. I think that's some practical advice. And so James chapter one, or James chapter two, verse one, he says, my brethren, he's speaking to believers. Listen, if an unbeliever is racist, if an unbeliever is prejudiced, if an unbeliever has discrimination in their heart, they're an unbeliever. They're a sinner. They don't know no better. But if you as a believer have racism, prejudice, discrimination in your heart at whatever capacity that might look like. James in James chapter 2 verse 9 says that is sin. That is sin. He says it don't need to be in your heart. Back, back when buildings were heated with, with boilers, big boilers, they would uh, have these little gauges on the outside of them. They're called a sight glass gauge. And, and uh, I had a picture of it. I don't know if we have it. But there was a little sight glass gauge on the outside. And what it was is a little tube. And if, if there was, that tube was half filled with water then you knew that the boiler was half full of water. If that little sight glass tube was, was three-quarters of the way full with water, then you knew that the big boiler was three-quarters full of water. In other words, you could look at this little bitty gauge and you could dictate how is the big boiler doing by looking at this little bitty gauge. Now, I think this is applying to us as well. If you want to know how your walk with the Lord is doing, if you want to know how your relationship with God is doing, A great gauge to judge that is not by how many Bible verses you have memorized. It's not by how many Sundays you've attended church. It's not by how much you give in the offering plate. The gauge for that is how do you treat others? That's the gauge. Why? Because in John 13, 34, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, "By uh, by, By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love one to another. He says, the gauge in which people are going to know that you are mine is how you love others. That's the gauge. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He says, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? If you want to know how you and God are doing... How you treat other people. People that don't look like you, talk like you, believe like you do, vote like you do. How you treating them? To have hatred towards someone just because of what they look like. James says that's sin. And James is taking issue with this, by the way. James is taking issue with this topic of discrimination because it's, it's, it's basically putting God's character on trial. As a Christian, you know what the word Christian means? Christ-like. Little Christ, Christ-like. And so we are to be ambassadors of God, representatives of God here on earth. And if we as ambassadors of God are, 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 are having uh, 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 some kind of discrimination or prejudice in us, then people look at us and say, well, they represent God, therefore their God must be like that. And so James is taking issue with that because God's, God's character is on trial here. 
And, and, and throughout the Bible, you find that there's some oxymorons. Do you know what an oxymoron is? Jumbo shrimp. All right, that's a great, right off the bat, oxymoron. Jumbo means big, shrimp means small. Those two words don't make sense, but somehow you put them together and it makes sense. Jumbo shrimp. So an oxymoron in the Bible would be something like an unforgiving Christian. There's no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. Right? This is why Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. You don't have to turn there. But Peter comes to Jesus and asks him a question. He says, Jesus, how many times should we forgive someone? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. In other words, what he's saying is, no, you should be in a continual habit of, of offering forgiveness. And so if you are nursing grudges against somebody, if, you, if somebody has offended you and you're refusing to forgive them, Jesus is basically saying, are you kidding me? I have forgiven you of everything you've done, everything you are doing, and everything you will do to break my heart. And yet you're not going to offer forgiveness to this person because they've offended you? Listen, that's out of step with the gospel. That's out of step with the gospel. Another oxymoron is a greedy Christian. There's no such thing as a greedy Christian. In Luke chapter 2 and and in Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching about this whole issue. And in Matthew 25, he's talking to uh, the followers there, the gathering there. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. And they asked him, when did we see you like this? How, how did, we never saw you like this. And he says, well, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. In other words, we need to be the kind of people who just give and give and give and love people despite what condition they are, despite where they're at in their life. Do you realize God gave his only son for you? Listen, I have two kids, and I love them. I love them. And I like y'all, too. Y'all are cool. We can hang sometime. Y'all are cool. I like y'all. But I'm going to tell you right now, I would not give near one of my kids for you. As much as I love you, I would not give one of my kids for you. But God bankrupted heaven for you, took the most precious thing from heaven, and put it on a cross for you. And for us to be a type of Christian who's greedy, that's incompatible with the gospel. And also in step with this, racist Christian is an oxymoron. That is an oxymoron. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul confronts Peter to his face. Paul says that I took him to his face. Why? Well, because Peter was hanging out with his Gentile friends. And they're having a good old time, man. They're eating pork chops and BLTs and bacon, man. They're just having a good old time. And all of a sudden, his Jewish friend walk in. You know what Peter does? Excuse me, fellas. To go hang out with his Jewish friends. And Paul calls him out on that. He says, this, this, that was, you shouldn't have done that, Peter. And matter of fact, he calls him out. And this is why he called him out in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. In Galatians 2.14, it says, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. He's saying, Peter, for you to treat these people one way and these people a different way, you are not walking in step with the gospel. You cannot be a Christian racist. And the tragedy, here's the tragedy. I, I knew it. Listen, it's, it's tight right now. I feel it. I feel it. It's tight. And I knew it was going to be tight. I knew it was going to be tight. 
But here's the tragedy in Christianity in most Christian circles and in most Christian people is they'll come up to somebody who looks different than them and say, hey, I'm good enough to be your brother in Christ, but just not your brother-in-law. Y'all picking up what I'm putting down? I'll be your brother in Christ. We just can't be family. And you can pretty it up and you can call it what you want, but red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. And so James has taken issue with discrimination within the church and within believers because God's character is in question because of how his children act. Let's take a look at God's character. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. He says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. In other words, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't deal justice here and not justice here. He doesn't regard the person. He just, he's a just God. And he doesn't take bribes. He don't, you can't bribe God. In verse 18 it says, He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and the widow, and loveth the stranger, and giving him food and raiment. God's very character is that He does not respect persons because of their status, their color, their background, because of their tax bracket, because of what their last name is. He just says, I'm a just God and I'm going to rule justly. I'm going to love everyone. And, and it doesn't matter what you look like, what you've done. I love you because I'm God and there is no respecter of persons in me. He is a just God. That's the character of God. In fact, he made it clear in Deuteronomy as well. He says, as a matter of fact, I want you to put people in power that are going to rule like me as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18 and 19, he tells them to put judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout the tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. Thou shalt not rest judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons. Again, okay, you're not going to treat one person differently than another. You're going to treat them equally. Neither take a gift, for a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. So partiality or favoritism is an issue with James because God's righteousness is an issue with James. He's like, we're a little Christ. We're supposed to be Christ-like. And if we have partiality, favoritism, discrimination, prejudice in our heart, then we're not representing the Christ, who, how he needs to be represented. He says, this is an issue. This is an issue. In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, is a continuation from James chapter 1, verse 27. The very last verse of James chapter 1, and James chapter 1, verse 27, he talks about pure religion. He says, This is what pure religion looks like. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, did you catch that? There, there, there is a warning here. He says, This is what pure religion looks like is that you minister to the fatherless and the, and the widows and, and the, to make sure they're taken care of. But there's a warning, he says, that you keep yourself unspotted from the world. What does that mean? That you remain uninfluenced from the world. Now, James is going to spend a lot of time in, in, in his, his writings, in his letter, talking about works and talking about faith. Matter of fact, a lot of people believe and talk about James as support of that your salvation is by works. That's not what James is saying at all. He's not saying that at all. What James is saying is, is that your salvation should work. You know, here, here's what he's saying. What Jesus has done is our salvation. What Jesus has done is our salvation, but what you have done is proof of it. Does that make sense? 
what Jesus has done is your salvation, but what you are doing is proof of that salvation. So book, uh, chapter 1 of James, he's talking about this is how you know you have true faith. Is that you're able, you're able to withstand trials, tribulations, and temptations. We get to chapter 2. He says, this is how you know you have pure faith. And that you don't discriminate. You treat people fairly. That's how you can evaluate if you have true faith. Because how many of you know there's people within the four walls of this church who claim to have faith but are far from it? Now, let's be honest. All right, there's a lot of people who will stand before God at the judgment and will say, well, God, I went to church. I sang the hymns. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. And so the whole purpose of James writing this epistle is so that you can evaluate what kind of faith do you have. Because if you're someone who has a lot of discrimination and hatred towards certain people, James is saying that's not true faith. That's not what faith looks like. And so the Jewish custom at that time was to respect different people for different reasons. If you were rich, you got more respect because they figured God blessed you. If you were poor, you got less respect because God, they thought God cursed you. And so that's the way they treated people. Then Jesus comes on the scene and he flips everything upside down, inside out. And, and, and God's economy, that don't work no more. Jesus comes on a, sea, on a scene and he says, hey, the first shall be last. The, the poor shall be rich. The rich shall be poor. He, he ta- he ta- hey, the least of these shall be the greatest. Everything comes upside down. And that's why the Pharisees and the teachers hated them because they went against everything that they taught. And, and so he comes in here and he starts telling them, listen, you don't treat people differently because of where they come from and what they got. You treat them equal. And so James says, don't let there be any favoritism, discrimination within you. Let me give you a definition of discrimination. I have it in your handout. Discrimination is to look at someone on the outside to determine their worth on the inside. To look at somebody on the outside... And determine what they're worth on the inside. That's discrimination. So here's the problem, though. Remember what James says? He says, don't, don't be spotted by the world, influenced by the world. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem, y'all. The problem is we live in a world where discrimination and prejudice and racism exist. So how can we be, dis- be discipled in a world where this stuff exists and yet not be influenced by it? Because let's be honest, it's in our nature to play favorites. I mean, it is. It's in our nature to, to, to prefer one group of people over another, one gender over another, one class of citizen over another. It's, it's in our nature to prefer one over the other. So how do we live in a world and remain unspotted and treat people equally and fairly? So we're going to look at that tonight. So first of all, in your, in your handout, point number one, we see the problem. The problem. One of the problems James deals with is our heart, our heart, uh, uh, letter A. If we look in, uh, in verse 4, he says, Are you not then partial in yourselves and have become, become judges of evil thoughts? In other words, this discrimination you have comes from your own mind. You're discriminating against them because of what's in your mind. And the mind and the heart is connected. What you believe is what you think. That's what James basically saying. You've, you've cast a judgment on that person simply by what they look like because that's what's in your heart. Right? And, and so James is saying we have a heart issue. I had a friend. I had a friend that had to have bypass surgery. And, uh, you know, he had terrible eating habits. He would sit down with a plate of food and everything's the same color. It's all brown. 
I mean, fried chicken, fried squash, French fries. He'd have mashed potatoes, but he'd cover it with brown gravy. You know, it was just everything on the plate was brown. There wasn't a vegetable to be seen. And he smoked a lot and all that kind of... Listen, I'm the same, okay? I ain't, I ain't got the bypass yet, but I'm headed that way, I think. Um, but, but my friend, man, he smoked and he, he ate terrible. And what would have happened if that doctor came into that room with him and says, here's what we're going to do. You go home, change your eating habits, quit smoking, eat some salads, and we'll call it a day. Well, I would have called a lawyer because that would have been malpractice. Why? Because he had some clogged arteries that needed to be fixed. Did my friend need to change his behavior? Absolutely. He needed to change his lifestyle. He needed to change his behavior, but he still had a sick heart. Right? And so even if he changed his behavior, his heart would have still been sick. And so he needed someone to step in to do something he couldn't do himself. He needed somebody to step in to fix his heart because he couldn't fix his heart on his own. And and listen, I am thankful. I'm thankful for the civil rights movement. I'm thankful for everything it accomplished. I think that that whole period of time was terrible. But here's the problem with the civil rights movement. They can legislate laws, but they can't change hearts. They can legislate discrimin- they, they cannot legislate discrimination away. They can't legislate racism away. Why? Because that's not in the scope and the power of the government, because it's a heart issue. And so we need to turn to someone that is the greatest heart surgeon of all time to get our hearts fixed, because we have some sick hearts. And the only person who can fix a sick heart like that is Jesus. And so the answer to all of this is that we need to get our hearts right with Jesus so he can take away the sickness that's in our heart. James says the way you think about people is connected to your heart. If you have a sick heart, it's going to make your mind corrupt about the way you think about people. And so James says we have a sick heart. Next, he says we have a problem with our hands. Our hands. Look at verse 8. He says, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. In other words, he's talking about how do you treat others? What's the royal law? The royal law is the law that's above all the other laws, that you love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandment. So Jesus was asked this question. What's the greatest commandment? He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it. You love your neighbor as yourself. Right. And so he talks about that. In, in, in matter of fact, in First Corinthians, chapter 13, the chapter of love, you read it at every single wedding there is. Right. I do it all the time. First Corinthians 13, the chapter of love. And, and he, Paul is talking about he says, now abideth faith, hope and charity. That word charity is love. He says the greatest of these three is love. You know what James is saying? You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying the birthmark of a believer should be love. What makes you stand out, what makes you different than the world is your love for others. How do you treat other people? And the primary word for love in the New Testament is the word agape, the Greek word agape. And the word agape is a sacrificial kind of love. It's a do whatever it takes kind of love. That's what that word means. And I want to read something to you for for a second because I don't want us to get off track, but I I want you to hear this. Christian love does not mean I have to like a person. Say amen right there. You can love them, but you don't have to like them. Christian love does not mean I have to like a person and agree with him on everything. I may not like his vocabulary or his habits. I may not want him for an intimate friend. Christian love means treating others the way God has treated me. Christian love is an act of the will, not an emotion. I try and manufacture. In other words, love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. 
You have to make the choice to love someone. If you're waiting for a feeling, you're going to be waiting a long time. Because I felt hungry about an hour ago. I don't feel that way now, but in two hours, I'm going to feel hungry again. Feelings come and go. And so don't trust your feelings. It's a choice. And he says, the motive for loving everybody is to glorify God. This means to be able to do uh, this means to be able to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit as an act in love towards another. I may find myself drawn more and more to them and I may be uh, and I may be able to see them through Christ some qualities that were before hidden to me. You know what I like that? I like that because let's be real. There's some people I just don't like. <laughs> let's see. Raise your hand if you don't like people. Keep your hand raised that are next to you. I'm just kidding. Put your hand. <laughs> All right. All right, let's be honest. There are some people in our life that we just don't like. I, 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 we may just have different personalities, different sense of humors, you know, different likes and interests. That's, that's fine. I, I, listen, I, they may be crude or irreverent. I don't want to hang around somebody like that very long. I still love them. But I don't necessarily have to like with them. It has nothing to do with their skin color. has nothing to do with their tax bracket. has nothing to do with their last name. has nothing to do with their gender. They're just annoying. Right? Like just, I just don't want to be around you. And, and this, is, this is, so what we're talking about when we talk about Christian love is, is that, listen, you can love somebody and not be their best friend at the same time. I, I, I'll go help you change a flat tire, but you may not come to my house for Christmas dinner. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I love you. From a distance. Right. And so there's this big misconception in our life today, in our culture today, that that in order to love someone, you have to agree with them. No, I don't have to agree with you, but I can still love you. Those two things aren't connected. I may not agree with your lifestyle choices. I may not agree with the way you handle your things with your kids or the way you handle with things with your wife. I may not agree with you on certain things. I can still love you, though. And, And this this is what we're talking about here. That we just love people equally. It don't matter what they've done or what they look like or where they're from. We just love them. We may, we may not be their best friend, but I love you. I care for you, man. I want God to do great things in your life. I want God to transform you. I want God to really show up and minister to you and your family. But, I mean, we're not going to hang out. And that's fine. And, and Jesus, when he gave this answer about what's the greatest commandment, he says, you know, love your love Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. In Luke chapter 10, some smart aleck asked, well, who is my neighbor? And so then Jesus gives a parable. He gives a parable of the Good Samaritan. Y'all, I'm sure y'all are familiar with it. And so the scenario goes like this. There's a man who is beaten and robbed. And he's laying on the roadside. It's inferring that this is a Jewish man. And, and in that time period where he's there fighting for his life on the roadside, two different people walk by on two different occasions. One's a priest, one's a Levite. Yep. Jewish people, Jewish brethren. And they look at this man suffering on the, uh, on the roadside, and they just keep on walking. And then in this story, all of a sudden, a Samaritan walks up. Now, this is significant because Samaritans, in the Jewish estimation, they were considered half-breeds. They were less than. They were inferior but the Samaritan walks up, he sees this Jewish man who's been beaten and robbed, and the Samaritan goes out of his way to pick him up and put him on the back of his donkey, take him into town, put him in a hotel, take care of his medical bills, tells the innkeeper, listen, if anything else comes up, put it on my tab. I'm taking care of him. Now, this is what biblical love looks like. Matter of fact, I have in your handout, there's a blank to fill out right there. This is what biblical love is. Biblical love is inconveniencing yourself for the convenience of others. 
I don't have to like you. But man, if I need to help you, I will. It's inconveniencing yourself for the convenience of others. Despite what they look like, despite what they smell like, despite their history, I'll be there for you. And, and, and this is what Jesus is trying to teach in this moment. He's saying you cannot love and discriminate at the same time. You can't do it. Those things can't exist together. And so we see that we have a problem with our heart. We see that we have a problem with our hands. And in verse uh, 9, it talks about that we have a problem with our eyes. In verse 9, it says, but you have respect to persons. You commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. In other words, he says you have respect to persons. You, you favor some people over others. And this scenario that James has given us, why did they favor one person over the other? Because one was finely dressed and the other was not. And so they made a judgment on that individual simply by what they saw. They made a judgment about those individuals simply by the exterior, simply by what they saw with their eyes. They didn't show mercy. And I love, I love that James is writing this. Because let's put it in perspective for a second. Who was James? James was a half-brother of Jesus. All right. Joseph, James's daddy, what kind of trade was he? A carpenter. I don't know about you. I mean, there's some carpenters who make a lot of money, but most of them are just blue-collar workers. They were not the hierarchy of, of society. They weren't hanging out with the king. They were just low-level workers at that time period. James knew what it was like to come from a background where he was looked down upon because of who he was and where he came from. And I like that James is writing this because I believe he's putting himself in that, that category. People look down on me because of who I was. And so con- James is confronting this idea that, man, it's so shallow. Because so, look at what James has accomplished now. Before, he was just a carpenter's son. Now here he is le- leading the Jewish church for Christianity. And eventually, you know, he was called Camel Knees. Do you know James, was, his nickname was Camel Knees? Because he prayed so much, he got calloused on his knees and said he looked like he had Camel Knees. And so this man of God prayed and saw the hand of God move on that early Christian church in, that, in Jerusalem. And ultimately he was thrown down and killed because of his faith. But at one time he was just a poor carpenter's son. So they looked down on him because of who he was. How shallow. Listen, there's coming a day where I'm going to die. And Tracy's going to cry a little bit. She'll be sad for a little while. And then that life insurance check's going to come in. <laughs> And she'll be like, <laughs> wiping her tears with it. Now, I've given her strict instruction. You better not spend a dime on the next man. He better not get a truck, a boat. He better not even get a cup of coffee with it. All right. Like, don't don't let that man touch that money. Now, you think I'm funny, but Ecclesiastes chapter two, Ecclesiastes chapter two, King Solomon speaks about this. He says, "Yea, I hated all my labor, which I had taken under the sun because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. He says, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to work and work and acquire and get and get and get, and then one day I'm going to die, and it's just going to be left to the next person. Isn't it shallow to base our judgment on somebody just because of what they look like and what they got? Because it's temporal. It's superficial. It's shallow. It don't mean nothing. Think about when you was in high school, if you can think back that far. When, I know, I'm sorry, that was a low blow. I, I apologize. There's more of you than there are me. I'm sorry. 
Um, but when I was in high school, it wasn't that very long ago. And I think about some of the trends, you know, the cool people, what they wore. And, and this is so silly, but it's coming out. You know, trends come back. You wish some things would just stay gone. You know, but certain things came like the mullet came back. Right. They came back with a vengeance. Man, you saw mullets everywhere. Well, when I was in school, the cool people had frosted tips. Y'all may not know what that is, but it's like highlighted hair. The guys would have highlighted hair on top of their head. And they wore Tommy Hilfiger pants. They wore Birkenstock clogs, little slide-in shoes. And they drove 5.0 Mustangs. I don't know why that was the cool thing, but at the time, that's what they drove. And so the cool kids had frosted tips in their hair, had Tommy Hilfiger pants. They wore clog Birkenstocks, and we knew that was the cool people. Now, when you was in school, it might have been something different. It might have been stonewashed jeans and Aquanet hair. Y'all know, you know, listen, I know some of you ladies that want to talk about Aquanet, a whole can. Just, maybe it was bell bottoms and fair faucet hair. Maybe it was leather jackets. I mean, you knew who the cool kids were because of what they wore. Now we look back at our high school pictures and we're like, oh, Lord, what was I thinking? We look silly. But in the moment, we thought that stuff was so important, didn't we? Now we look back at it and we say, that's so silly. You know, it's what James is saying. It is so silly to base someone's value simply by what they look like on the outside. So what's the solution here? How do we fix this? How do we fix this? Here, right, here, point number two, the solution is Jesus. The solution is Jesus. And in the very first chapter, our very first verse of chapter two, my brethren have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, respect the persons. He's basically saying, if you have faith in Jesus, then you should not be a respecter of persons. Why? Because you are a Christ-like person. Your example is Christ. And so if you want to fight this urge of discrimination and prejudice and whatever it is in your life, he says, we've got to turn to Jesus, Amen. the author and the finisher of our faith. And so we look at, A, his behavior. His behavior. What are some of the behavior traits we can look at? Well, we can look at how he treated other people. His treatment of others. In Matthew 22, Matthew 22, verse 16, they came to him and said, they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. You know what the people who are saying this, these are the enemies of, of Jesus, by the way. And they said, we watched you and you treat people fairly. You, 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 you treat people equally. There's no partiality in you. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that enemies can speak about your character based on how you treat other people? What would somebody say about you? If they watched you, what would they say about you? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Brother Andrew, listen, how do I get over this? Some of this stuff was in me since I was a kid, man. It was just something we grew up in. This is just something that's been part of my life for so long. So I understand it ain't right, but how do I get over it? How do I unlearn it? How do I get past this? Well, secondly, we got to look at the way Jesus viewed others. How you see people, we determine how you treat people. That's a Facebook quote right there. How you see people will determine how you treat people. And so how many of you would say, yeah, Let's be honest. How many would say there's been a time in my life I have prejudged someone just simply because of what they look like? Oh, yeah. It don't have to be a, a skin color. It don't have to be. It's just maybe they pull up in a Range Rover and like, daddy's money. You know, you're like, you don't know anything about that person. 
Maybe it's because of the kind of clothes they have. Maybe it's because they have tattoos or piercings. And immediately you're like, huh, criminal. And you don't know the, the person's name. But you've already got them all figured out. Listen, there's a guy in the gym. I hope you don't go to this church. I mean, I hope you do. I hope you go to church. Meet me afterwards. I don't know. Um, <laughs> there's a guy at the gym. I have never talked to the guy. And I'm a pretty sociable person, man. I go, I talk to Eric, I'm like the mayor of the gym, man. I walk in, everybody knows me. And I walk around, handshake, and this guy keeps to himself. He don't talk to nobody, don't bother nobody, just does his thing. He racks his weights. He's a good gym member. I mean, he does his thing. But there's just something about him. I'm like, he's a jerk. <laughs> I have never talked to him. And just by simply watching him walk around the gym, I have made this presumption about him that he is a jerk. He could be the nicest dude in the world. But just simply because of certain things I've noticed, I'm like, oh, he's a jerk. That's so wrong in me. Man, God convicted me. He's like, Andrew, you need to go talk to that dude. And so that's going to be on my agenda before the end of this week. I'm going to strike up a conversation. We're going to find out if he's really a jerk or not. I'm praying he ain't. But how many of you would say you've had some bad days before? Some bad days? Now, what if somebody made their assumptions about you just because of one interaction they had with you on your bad day? But that's what we do with other people, ain't it? We have one interaction with somebody. We have one interaction with them. Maybe not even verbal interaction, but we just have an interaction. They could be having a bad day, but we walk away and say, well, she was a prude. He was a jerk. But here's the thing about Jesus, the way Jesus viewed people, he didn't look at the outside, he looked at the inside. And and, and he didn't look at people's past, he looked at their potential. Now for some of y'all in here, that should be an amen sentence because you have a past. And you should be thankful that God looks at your potential, not just at your past. Think about when he found old Peter. Peter was a cussing fisherman. But Jesus didn't see that, he saw the preacher of Pentecost. He knew there was going to be a moment Peter got up there and thousands of people got saved because of the influence of Peter. When he saw old Matthew, the tax collector, he didn't see some slimy traitor. He saw a man that would one day pen one of the greatest gospels ever written and millions of people would get saved because of the words he put in that gospel letter. When he saw that Samaritan woman, he didn't see some promiscuous harlot who had multiple husbands and shacking up with a man that wasn't even her husband then. He saw somebody that would carry the gospel light to her town and her whole village would get saved and come out to meet Jesus. I love that he don't just look at our past, but he sees our potential. I'm thankful. I'm thankful when I was 17 years old, man, I was, well, I was chasing sin. Because listen, sin's fun. And if you don't think it's fun, it's because you ain't been doing it right. All right. Sin is fun. For a season. For a season. And I was the kind of person, boy, I chased sin, I, cha- I chased worldly pleasures, and, and I was slick with it. I, unfortunately, I was a little too slick with it. But I remember, man, God captured my heart one day at 17 years old, and I gave my life to Him. And it wasn't very much longer. We went on a youth camp to World Changers, a big, big World Changers organization. They do mission camps all over the states. And we went to a place in Dothan, Alabama for World Changers. And that week, on that Wednesday night, during the worship service, God spoke to my heart. He says, Andrew, you're going to go in youth ministry. As, as real as you and I are talking, I just felt it. I knew it. It was solidified. I knew this is what God was calling me to do. Boy, I was fired up. I went down. My dad happened to be a chaperone at that camp. 
And Tracy's dad, my wife, he, he was my youth pastor at one point. And so he's there at this camp. And, and, and I run down and I find them both. And I said, hey, I'm going to go be a youth pastor. And they're like, they didn't even smile. I said, great. And, you know, it didn't really take the wind out of myself. I was still, boy, I still jacked up. And then years later, I had a conversation with my now father-in-law, who was my youth pastor. I said, Brother Steve, I said, you remember that night I come and found you and told you I was going to go into ministry? He said, yeah. I said, remember, I was really excited. And you weren't too excited. Why? And he looked at me and says, Brother, I didn't know if it would stick. And to be honest, looking at who I was then, I would be wondering too. Like, is this really going to stick? But I'm thankful that when God saw me, he didn't just see my past. He saw my potential. He saw somebody that would one day be called into ministry and preach to thousands of people, go all over the world, preaching in different continents, seeing people of every nation and tribe getting saved, influencing thousands of teenagers, thousands of young people. Man, God saw something I couldn't see. But most people just saw my past. I wonder... What would happen in our church if we started looking at people's potential and not just their past? What if we really viewed people the way Jesus views people? So if you want to fight the tendency of prejudice and discrimination in your heart, see the worth in people on the inside. Then thirdly, his example. In John chapter 4, you know the story. Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. This is a great story because Jesus is trying to break down some racial barriers right now. In John chapter 4, verse 4, he says he must needs go through Samaria. Now, here's the thing. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. The Jewish people walked around Samaria all the time. Jewish people hated Samaritans. They didn't want to go through their city. And so they, the, the, the shortest distance between Judea and Galilee was to walk through Samaria. That's about 70 miles. Still a long walk, but it was the shortest distance. And the Jewish people would walk around Samaria, almost doubling the distance to 130 miles, just so they wouldn't step into Samaritan territory. But Jesus says, I need to go through Samaria. Now think about this. He has 12 Jewish men as his followers. And he's about to take them into a town they've avoided their whole life. And they get to that town. Jesus says, I need you to get me some food. And they go and talk to some people they would have avoided their whole life. You know what? If you're going to follow Jesus as your example... He's going, to, he's going to require you to confront some things you've been trying to avoid your whole life. He's going to make you confront things you have been trying to avoid. And it may not be pretty. And so they go into this town, and they begin to ask for some food. And while they're on this mission to get food, Jesus has a conversation with a woman at the well. We know the story. She had multiple husbands. The man she was with right now wasn't even her husband, but she shacked up with him. And Jesus is having a conversation with her, and they're ta- starting to talk about worship. And, 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 Jesus, and, and this woman says to Jesus, well, we know that when the Messiah comes, he'll make it all clear. And he looks at her, he says, I am he. Yeah. And it's at this moment that the disciples are coming back with their McDonald's. And they see Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, and they're asking in themselves, what is he doing talking to her? And here's the other thing I've learned, is that when you're following Jesus as your example, it's going to require you to expand your limits of God's love. Because in that moment, what they come to realize is, Jesus loves Samaritans too? He don't just love us? He loves Samaritans? Here's where we mess, mess things up. 
is that we're supposed to be a conduit of God's love. But many times we're the gate. And we try to decide who we let in and who can't get in. And Jesus says, no, you're just a conduit. You just follow my example. I love them all. Jesus ain't just for the white folk. He's for the Maasai tribe in Africa. He's for the pygmy tribe in the Amazon. He's for the Tibetan monk in China. He's for the Muslim man in Turkey. He's for the drug addict in your neighborhood. He's for the homeless man in Birmingham. Listen, Jesus is for everyone. You know the only qualification that you need to have to know and have a relationship with Jesus? The only one qualification. You've got to be a sinner. That's it. And I can tell you every nation, tribe, tongue, and dialect is full of sinners. And so we aren't supposed to regulate and be a gatekeeper. We're supposed to just funnel the love of God everywhere we go, no matter who it is, what they look like, what they smell like, how much money they got. We just funnel the love of God to them. Because sometimes we forget that we ain't much either. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus is speaking to the church at Sardis. And he says to them, Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing... And look what he says, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He says, you think you all that in a bag of chips, but you ain't nothing but a blind, naked wretch. When I found you, you want nothing. So how dare you snub your nose at someone else? How dare you try to figure out who can and who can't? Because we weren't all that when God found us either. And most churches have lost their credibility to deal with the issue of discrimination outside the four walls of the church because it exists within the four walls of the church. And most of us have lost the ability to, to, to enact change in the community outside the four walls of the church because it exists in the four walls of our home. And so I want to give you, I'm going to give you an assignment, some application. In your handout, you have the acronym ARC. A-R-C, ARC. The A stands for awareness. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a time, some time, and just ask God, is there some, some bias in my life that I need to be aware of? Some prejudice in my life I need to be aware of? Some kind of issue that I need? Maybe I have somebody in my neighborhood that has something they need help and, and assistance with, and I've just been kind of ignoring it. God, help me be aware. Help, help me open my eyes to see the, the needs around me. No matter what they look like, God, help me be the hands and feet of, of you, God, in my community. Help me be aware of these things. And R is relationship. Relationship. Proximity builds empathy. Distance builds suspicion. Let me say that again. Proximity builds empathy. Distance builds suspicion. In other words, when I'm close to you, I can empathize with you. I get to know you. I get to know your struggles. I get to know your, 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 what, what your interests are. I, I, can, I can sympathize. I can empathize with you. But from a distance, if I don't know you, I'm suspicious of you. And so maybe we need to pray, for God, give me some relationships with people who don't necessarily look like me. Or who are not necessarily from my background, that are not necessarily in my tax bracket. Help me have a relationship with them so now that I can empathize with them because from a distance, God, I'm kind of suspicious of them. 
but I really wanted to get to know them. It's hard to be prejudiced with people who are sitting at your dining room table. We all quiet. It's hard to be prejudiced when somebody's at your dining room table. It's, it's hard to discriminate when, you have, when they're your best friend. So God, give me some relationships. And then see commitment. Commitment. From a distance, it's easy to have presumptions about an individual. You know, maybe you see a homeless man and immediately you start gauging them and say, well, they're probably a drug addict or a drunk. Man, one of the most humbling things ever was when I was with uh, Travis Sharp in, in New Orleans a few years ago doing a resource clinic, and I got to talk to a, a homeless man there in New Orleans, and he was a believer, knew the Lord, had, had strong faith, and he looked at me and he says, Brother, I'm homeless, but I'm not hopeless. Yeah. But from a distance, you would have saw that man, and you would have immediately assumed he was a drug addict or he was a drunkard, but he was your brother in Christ. Yeah. Because proximity builds empathy. You get to know them. And here's the thing. If we don't make a commitment to put ourselves out there to get to know these people, it will never happen. Man, when I first got my call to preach when I was 17 years old, I'd preach anywhere they'd have me. I was terrible. I didn't improve much, but I was way worse. Way worse. And so I would preach anywhere they would have me. And so on Tuesday nights, I'd preach at the Panama City Rescue Mission with Brother Fox. And on Thursdays, I'd preach at the jail with Brother Melvin. And on Saturdays, I'd preach at the juvenile detention center. And on Sundays, I'd preach at the, at the nursing home in the area. I did that for years. It, it was the most beautiful experience of my life. Because not only did it give me practice, it gave me perspective. And I got to know these brothers and sisters in the Lord in the middle of their struggle. And it made me empathize with them. Made me care for him in a way I couldn't have cared for him, care for him from a distance. And so that has been kind of a burden for me when I was over TSM. We made sure we would go to the rescue missions and hand out meals and we'd have conversations with people because I wanted them to get close yeah. and see that these are just people. Do you know there's only two people that exist in God's population? Right. Save people and lost people. That's it. We're the ones that put the tags on them. But he says, there's my children and there's people who have yet to be my children. But I love them all. We're the ones that put the tags on them. And so maybe you pray, God, help me get a commitment to get close to people who aren't like me. You know the difference between uh, middle class brokenness and lower class brokenness? Middle class brokenness is we have more fig leaves to cover our shame. But when you deal with somebody who's homeless, who, who is in rehab, who is at the lowest point of their life, listen, they're just vulnerable and real and honest with you. And they don't care to tell you their faults and their failures. And there's something beautiful about that. Because we get so used to trying to hide all our problems and pretend like we got it all together. We got it all figured out. We ain't got no issues. Man, there's something beautiful and genuine about being around people who just be up front with you. And like, yeah, man, I got a problem. There's something great about that. So God, help us be committed to reaching out to people who aren't like me. James says, don't let there be discrimination within you. Because that's not what real faith looks like. There's a funny story about the Pope. I'm not Catholic, obviously. But there's a funny story about the Pope. He had a speaking engagement. 
and uh, he got picked up on the tarmac from his airplane. Limo driver loaded everything in the trunk, and uh, he's ready to go, and he looks at the Pope, and the Pope's just standing there. He says, sir, my holiness, whatever, you got to get in the car. Because we gotta, we got to go. We're going to be late if we don't get in the car. And the Pope says, well, they don't ever let me drive anymore. I would really like to drive. Limo driver says, I, sir, I can't let you do that because I could lose my license, lose my job. And the Pope says, I will make it worth your while. He says, okay. He gets in the back seat, and the Pope just tears off down the interstate going about 105 miles an hour. And that limo driver in the back seat, this boy, he's anxious and he's worried. And by that time, lights come up behind him and it's the, it's the police officer pulling him over. Police officer comes up to the window, knocks on it. The Pope rolls down the window. Police officer walks back to his car, calls his chief, says, Chief, we've got a problem. He says, what's up? He said, I just pulled a limo over going 105 miles an hour down the interstate. He said, bust him. He said, you don't understand. It's really important. He says, well, that's even more reason to bust him. He says, sir, you don't understand. This is a big deal. He says, well, is it the mayor? He says, no, bigger than that. He says, the governor? He says, no, bigger than that. He says, well, who is it? He says, I think it's God. <laughs> he says, why in the world do you think it's God? He's like, he's got the Pope as a chauffeur. I don't know who's in there. <laughs> I say all that to, number one, lighten the mood, because y'all been real tense. But number two, for this reason, who is steering your life? Who is steering your life? We know this is, this ain't really been easy preaching, but it's definitely hard living. Because this world we live in, we're naturally inclined to just have prejudice and discrimination of every kind. And it don't have to be based on skin color, it could be whatever. We just have natural prejudice that comes up in our life. And if we really want to filter that out, and we really want to be practitioners of what pure faith looks like, we've got to make sure Jesus is behind the steering wheel of our life. And we've got to push aside that flesh that wants to rear its ugly head up every now and then. And we've got to say, you go to the back seat. Jesus has got the steering wheel. And we're going to trust him wherever he takes us. So, church, I want to encourage you. Pray the ark. Be aware. Build some relationships. And make a commitment to put yourself in uncomfortable situations. Because otherwise, you won't do it. You won't do it.